So let's just uh, take a moment, just turn from all these wonderful things that we've been hearing, and let's just turn towards Jesus, who now wants to speak into our lives and teach us and feed us um, from things that he wants to say to us. So Father, thank you for all um, that we've been hearing this morning. Thank you for our time of worship. Thank you for hearing about families, about little feet, about reaching out into the garden quarter, about all that you've been doing through us, your people here, in reaching out into our communities in different ways. And Lord, this is what you did. All the time you were on earth, you were going about doing good um, to everyone that you met. But Lord Jesus, you also took a lot of time where you just called those who you'd called to be your disciples. You called them to you. You called them out of the busyness of life. You called them out of the works that you destined them to do. You'd called them away from doing good things because you wanted them to be with you. And Lord Jesus, that's where we're at now this morning. This is our time, Lord Jesus, to come and gather at your feet and to hear what you want to say to us because you want to instruct us. You want to feed us. You want to deepen our relationship with you. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you'll come and you'll, I pray you'll help us to put everything else down like Mary did when she sat at Jesus' feet. I pray you'll help us to let go of every concern, every worry, every thought, every anxiety, every to-do list. Help us to release it all for this next 20 minutes and help us to hear, Lord Jesus, what you have to say to us. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Amen. Okay, so over this term or over this next year, actually, but over this, this term, um, God, I believe, is drawing us together as his disciples because he wants to speak to us and help us and strengthen us. And he's asking us two questions. He wants us to look inside of ourselves in ways that we have never before done. And he's asking us to honestly ponder the genuineness and depth of our relationship with him. And he wants to give us a few practical steps um, in order to grow in this area. And the main idea that Jesus is unpacking with us is this, that we cannot be spiritually mature without being emotionally mature. And that often our lives, in fact, I would say most of the time, our lives are like an iceberg. There's the top 10% that's showing, which is where we're in church together, where we're looking good and on our best behavior. But then there's also 90% of our lives, which Jesus wants to penetrate with his word, that 90%. He wants to plumb the depths of each and every one of us and bring his truth and his light and his love. And we see, um, when we look at King David, we see a man 
who is fully in touch with himself. So we all think of King David as a man who was after God's heart and pressed into God, knew God, did amazing feats, slew giants, slaughtered armies, stood up against enemies, established the kingdom. But David was also a man who was deeply in touch with himself. He was a man who knew what it was to be sad. He knew what it was to be angry. He knew what it was to be confused. And David brought every single part of his life, all of his emotions, before God, for God to work in those areas of his life, as well as all the spiritual things that he did in the power of God. He was aware of what was going on inside of him. And I believe over these few weeks, Jesus wants us to become aware of what's going on inside of us because he wants to penetrate those depths. And that can be a bit scary because Jesus might bring to the surface things that you don't particularly like about yourself or want to deal with about yourself or have shoved down. And I think it's really important that we grasp the truth that as Jesus is dealing with us over these weeks to come, to set us free, to bring his love, to bring healing, um, we must believe that our righteousness and our standing before him is based on what Jesus has done, not my performance. And this is a time where if we let God come and deal with us, we must really lean into his grace. So as Jesus begins to deal with some of the less refined parts of my character or areas where I'm bound or not making it, um, trust that God's grace covers us. God's grace is not just a concept, but something that we can live and move and swim in the depths of that grace. Jesus wants to build a people here, a company of people who are real and authentic and have experienced him at the deepest levels. And as that company of people, just like the disciples, he can then, because there are deep foundations in us, he can build high because he knows that we will all stand together. Okay, so if we could have the second slide. Um, so we're going to be looking at the whole of us as a person. And I said last week that often um, in church, we concentrate on just the spiritual side of us. We concentrate on spiritual disciplines. We concentrate on what Jesus has done for us. We develop ourselves spiritually without looking at the whole of us as a person. And over these next few weeks, we are going to be looking at every aspect of ourselves. But this morning, actually, I do want to talk about the spiritual aspect of our lives. Because often, well, maybe it's just me, but I thought, oh, I've got this one, Tate. And when I got to the end of this, 
All I could say was, Lord, have mercy on me because I have sinned. I was absolutely undone. And possibly that could be true of a few of you as well. So we're going to, if you will journey with me, we're going to race through this this morning. Okay, so the first part of our spiritual life that I want to look at is this. Sometimes we use God to run from God. And you think, what, what an odd title. What on earth are we talking about there? And I just want to perhaps give some examples. Often, we can generate a huge amount of God activity in our lives. But actually, we never take any time to be with God. But we can look good on the outside because I'm serving on the coffee rotor and I'm on the hosting team and I'm helping in the garden quarter and I'm going to house group. And on the outside, I'm generating loads of spiritual activity. But actually, maybe I'm not really spending any time with Jesus, but I look good and nobody else would know any different. Sometimes we... Um, we use our spirituality to run from God because we do God's work to satisfy me rather than me doing God's work because he's called me to do it. So sometimes if I want to feel significant or important or whatever, I do what Jesus, I, I think, looks good. But it's not necessarily a commissioned work. Um, sometimes we pray and again, that looks very spiritual. But actually, we're praying for Jesus to do what I want rather than me to do his will. I'm using Jesus as my secretary. Sometimes we demonstrate Christian behaviors when um, other people are around so that we look good. Um, sometimes we can exaggerate our spiritual accomplishments because we want to look good. And sometimes we can use spirituality to justify um, why something is or isn't happening rather than applying God's word to my life. So for example, um, it could be that, I don't know, somebody goes to work, a Christian goes to work, and he does not get on with his workmates. And he can come away and say, oh, well, all of those who are called by God are going to suffer persecution. But actually, the truth could be he's just overbearing and bossy and not very nice to his co-workers. But we, we can use spiritual verses to justify bad behaviors. So we can use God to run from God. Um, that's in the wrong order. Okay. Could we go to feelings? Oh, no, I'm sorry. You have got it right. Oh, dear. Beg your pardon. Um, another thing that Christians can do um, in our spiritual life is because we are trying to be spiritual Christians, we do not acknowledge our feelings. And... Christians seem to fall into two categories when it comes to feelings. Very often, if we admit to feelings of anger, sadness, or fear, somehow 
we believe that we're in sin. Because if we're Christians, I shouldn't feel angry, because to feel angry is unloving. Or sometimes, if I feel depressed, I don't admit to it, because I must be out of God's will. Surely all Christians are meant to be joyful. Or, if I'm fearful, again, I must be a weak Christian, because the Bible is full of fear not. And so we do not admit to our feelings. The other side of that coin, if we could go on, is that many of us have been taught that it is wrong to admit to our feelings. So we've been taught, and this was very true of me, that the first thing that must be uppermost in our lives is the Word of God. The Word of God is the fact in any situation. And then secondly, in that situation, I have the choice of whether I trust in the Word of God or not. And the third part of that little train is my feelings are to follow the first two. But somehow we've got the belief that if we have feelings, they are of the flesh, they are wrong, they are sinful, they are not right. But Jesus made us as emotional beings. He made us to have feelings, but somehow we can't admit to them because we either think they're sin or because we think we shouldn't have them. And yet God himself is full of feelings. We see God angry. We see him sad. In Genesis, it says that when the Father looked on the earth, because everyone had turned away from him, it made him sad. And he was sorry that he had created man. It broke the Father's heart. He's familiar with sadness. Yet sometimes as Christians, we think, well, I shouldn't be sad, or I shouldn't be depressed, or I shouldn't be angry. And I would say we need to get rid of that, that belief. The third thing in our spirituality is that often we die to the wrong things. And we've grown up with that verse that if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me daily. Now I would ask you, when you think about that verse, don't, don't answer me, it's a, but what do you think of? And somehow, maybe it was just me, but somehow in my early formative years as a Christian, I felt that meant I had to deny my life and I started to deny the wrong things. If I wanted to do something that was fun, like go out with some friends, I might say, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to take this time to read the word. And we begin to prioritize our life so that we do those things that we think we should do, and we deny other things. To be true, Jesus does want us to deny things. He does want us to put certain things to death, but it's things like defensiveness, isolating ourselves from other people. Um, uh, he doesn't want us to deny 
um, the unique person that he made you to be. He only wants to put to death the stubbornness, the hypocrisy, the lack of vulnerability, the protectiveness, all those things that keep us separate from people. He doesn't want us to deny the artiness within us or the sportiness or the creativity or all the other things that he's put inside of us. But we as Christians can often die to the wrong things. Fourthly, we often deny the impact of the past on the present. So there's a day when all of us are born again. And it is absolutely true that the moment you are born again, you do become a new creation. You have a new name, daughter or son of the living God. You have a new identity. You have a new life and you have a new future. A miracle takes place the nanosecond you were born again. But it, the whole of your life is not instantly made new. Your whole past, your cultural past, so if you come from Chester, if you come from Taiwan, if you come from China, if you come from Africa, your whole culture has formed your being. And your entire family heritage has also formed your being. And I think last week I used the example that, you know, you can hear a 30-minute sermon on how to conduct our marriages. But actually, if you look at your parents' marriage and your grandparents' marriage, the characteristics that characterize that, your marriage, even though you are born again, will much more readily reflect the role models you saw growing up than the 30-minute sermon, albeit that it may have been brilliant. So there are things from our past that shape us. The fifth thing we can do um, in getting our spirituality wrong is we can divide life between secular and sacred. And we can think that everything we do um, that is in a spiritual context, this is what it is to be a Christian. But when we come to navigate our marriages, bring up our children, spend our money, study for exams, enjoy recreation, um, often, across the whole of Christianity, our lifestyle actually reflects actually reflects the world around us. And there can be very little difference because we've divided our lives into sacred and secular. And we come to church, but the rest of our life is pretty much lived as the world around us is living it. Jesus wants to penetrate our lives with truth and with all sorts of good things so that our lives are deeply transformed. Another thing we often do is this. We are very good at doing for God instead of being with God. 
Um, in Western society, high productivity, getting things done, achieving, that is right up there with the values of our society. And to spend time being with Jesus, listening to what the Spirit is saying, just for no other reason than he wants our company, that is actually valued very lowly. And so as a people, we can spend a lot of time rushing around doing for God rather than being with God and living out of that being. This is the picture of Martha and Mary. And, you know, we are called to do good works, but our being with God must be commensurate with our doing for God. But it's often the case in Western churches that we're full of good activity without taking time to slow down and be with him. And once we do that, once we start living out of being, uh, out of doing rather than being, other things can come in and infect our doing. So like we might do things because we want other people's approval. We might do things out of ego or power rather than because Jesus commissioned us to do that work. The seventh thing we do in our spiritual lives is that we can spiritualize away conflict. Now, this is really, we could have a, a whole 10-week session just on this. Often, we think that conflict is a terrible thing and that we should not have it as Christians. And if it comes up, we want to sweep it under the carpet as quickly as possible. We want to smooth over. We want to make things good, calm things down. But actually, when you think about Jesus, Jesus lived in a world of conflict. He was in conflict with the religious leaders of the time. He was in conflict with the disciples sometimes. They weren't afraid to really talk things out and thrash things out even though they disagreed. He was in conflict with the crowd by Jiminy. They wanted him to be their king, and he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't step into that role. He was in conflict with them. He was even in conflict with his own family. And what Jesus did when he was on the earth was he disrupted pseudo-peace in order to bring real peace. Jesus never, ever smoothed over a conflict just so that everybody would look good on the outside. If there was conflict, he dealt with it to the core of the being and resolved the conflict so that real peace could flow with, from without, from within. And often, I think, as Christians, we, we're afraid of conflict. I hate conflict. And we try and smooth things over, but that isn't what Jesus calls us to do. Another thing we do as Christians, because we think somehow it's spiritual, is that we are very good at covering up our brokenness, our weakness, and our failure. And there is a very real pressure on all of us that as Christians, we feel this pressure um, to be strong 
and spiritually together. And we can present an image to each other and our workmates and anybody else that I've got it all together. And we feel that pressure. And we find it hard to admit, do you know what? That whole thing broke me. Or I feel really, I don't feel I can do that. I feel really weak. I don't feel full of confidence. I don't feel competent to do that. Or failure. One of the greatest sermons I ever went to, um, the person who was speaking asked how many people here felt like they'd failed in life. And I put my hand up. And Jesus came and dealt with those failures in a beautiful way. But if I hadn't put my hand up to admit my failures, which were significant, he could never have come to heal me and set me free to carry on walking. And often, as Christians, we can put up these facades. We can put up these fronts. We mean to be good Christians, but we're not real with Jesus. We're not real with each other. And going back to that first picture, you know, this 10% of the iceberg shows, and we look good. But what Jesus longs for in this body is to gather us like his chicks. And he's saying, I love you, and I want you to allow me to deal with your mess so I can set you free, so I can strengthen you, so I can invigorate you and really heal you so you're good to go in truth, not just, you know, because I can quote a few, a few verses. In the Bible, you know, the Bible is full of people who made really serious life mistakes. You know, we've got Moses, who was a murderer. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. What would you think if Gerald was the pastor and I was a prostitute? I mean, you'd, you'd drum Gerald out of, out of Chester, probably. Noah got drunk. Jonah was a racist. I find that very interesting. Elijah burned out. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Moses had a temper. David was an adulterer and a murderer. The list goes on and on and on. Rahab was a prostitute. In the Bible, people do not cover up their brokenness, their weakness, and their failure. They bring it into the open. That's what Jesus wants for us. Number nine, we live without limits. Somehow there's this terrible pressure that I've got to do everything that is put before me. I've got to feed all the poor. I've got to heal all the sick. I've got to counsel those with debt. I've got to help my neighbor. And we live without limits. And I just want to put it to you, this is not how Jesus calls us to live. When Jesus was on the earth, he demonstrated that Jesus didn't heal everybody. He didn't feed everybody. He didn't set up a job club in Jerusalem. He only did what he saw his father doing, and he only said what he saw his father, heard his father saying. So I love that story when Jesus goes to the pool of Siloam, and there are thousands of people sat around that pool, and he healed one. And I go to that story quite often when I feel under pressure that I've got to come up with the goods for Chester 
or for where I work or whatever. And I think, no, all I have to do is listen to Jesus for what he's instructing. And I must put limits on myself. Yes, we are called to lay down our lives. But you know what? I've got to have a life before I can lay it down. I've got to look after myself. We have to look after ourselves. And to do that, we have to accept we're human. We're not the omnipotent, omnipresent God. So we must have God-given limits as to what we will do and not do in Jesus. Otherwise, we just become frantic and overloaded and burned out. No good for anything. I was... <laughs> Moving on quickly. Um, the finally, the last thing that uh, I want to do, just want to say, is that we can use our spirituality to judge others. Um, some of us are very good at dispensing advice. Some of us are very good at um, having the answer for everyone else. And that is a great danger. Some of us feel like we have to be the spiritual police. We have to, instead of leaving people and trusting people to walk with Jesus themselves, we feel we have to you know, point out where people are in sin or where they've got things right or they're in error. And you know, when Jesus was on the earth, there was a group of people who were very much like that, and they were called the Pharisees. And sometimes I think it's easy for us to become like a Pharisee. We've, we've got the answers. And, and what that breeds is pride. Because then I think, if I'm a person who's used to giving out answers and dispensing advice, then I find it very hard to receive from other people. And I'll only receive perhaps from people perceived to be experts. I won't receive from somebody that I perceive to be spiritually less mature than myself. And I think we just have to be careful of that, that we don't use our spirituality in that way. We've got to be a people who are willing to take the log out of my own eye before removing the speck in each other's. So, this is the beginning of our journey together. Jesus wants to take all of us. Like I said last time, he wants to raise a company of people, like those 12 disciples. And if you are a person who wants to be part of that company, who wants to let Jesus work in the deeper parts of our lives, it's time to roll up our sleeves and come to Jesus and say, Lord, where are these things affecting me? The best prayer I can think of is that we individually yield and surrender the whole submerged part of our iceberg and say, Jesus, you have total access. Just show me where to start. Show me the first thing that you want to deal with in me, trusting that everything he wants to deal with is in love. So... We have homework. Um, this, if you would like to come and collect a copy, we're going to be going through this in our house groups. And I would get with someone and seriously take this and go through it prayerfully over the next couple of weeks and ask the Holy Spirit to show you where Jesus wants to deal with you so that together we can move forward as a company of people 
deepening and developing our walk with our Lord and King. Amen.